Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, it's good to see everyone here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael Sigelko. I'm one of the youth pastors on staff here. And this morning, I have the pleasure of opening the scriptures with you. Now, if you've been tracking with our series, you'll know that we are in the book of Acts, finishing off Acts chapter 12. And if you've been reading ahead, you will know that there is a bit of a gruesome death in this story. Fair warning, things get a little gross. So to break the ice, I thought we'd play a little game. This game is simple. This game is called, How Did They Die? Here, here are the rules. I will say a name, and you just shout out how they died. All right, let's give it a go. J.F. Kennedy. Assassinated. Princess Diana. Car accident? You guys are good at this. Uh, Steve Irwin? The Stingray. Okay, now, if you haven't gotten any of those right, I'll throw you a bone. Jesus. He was crucified. All right, well done, good job. That'll make sense later. Ready to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we invite your spirit to be active and alive this morning. Lord, would your truth be revealed, and would you give us the ears to hear? Amen. So last week, Pastor Raul led us through the first part of the story in Acts chapter 12, where Herod is persecuting the Christians, he kills James the Apostle, arrests Peter, and then an angel miraculously frees Peter from prison. Herod gets angry, and we pick up where we left off last week. Acts chapter 12, starting in the second part of verse 19. Then he, that is Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, This is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So, now you know why the youth pastor is preaching this morning. Yeah, give the young guy the weird passage where a guy gets eaten alive by worms. See what he does with it. Yeah, it, it, it's weird. It's weird to us, uh, but you can start telling this story to anyone who lived in the second part of the first century, or anyone who lived in the second century, ask them the question, how did King Herod die? And they could all finish it, just like we know how the famous people in our era died. That's normal to us. This story was normal to them. The cool things about stories of kings, emperors, rulers in the Bible is that other people who lived in that time like to record and report the life and the death of their kings. So we can see that there's other sources of literature, other accounts outside of the Bible that claim Herod's death was real, historical, proving this portion of scripture to be true. One of our best sources we have for doing this is a first century Jewish historian named Josephus. And I'll be re uh, referencing him a few times throughout this morning. Okay, nevertheless, this is a weird story for us. 
but believe it or not, there is something significant to be gleaned from it. So bear with me, and I will do my best to prove it to you. Okay, let's back up for a minute, set the scene a little better. Before we dig deeper into the passage itself, let's talk about Herod. Who was he? What was he like? His proper name was Herod Agrippa I. He ruled over all of Palestine, which made Jerusalem the capital of his kingdom. Uh, you might be familiar with his grandfather, Herod the Great, who was the Herod who reigned during the birth of Jesus and the man who tried to kill Jesus as an infant. He wasn't a super popular dude. His grandson, Herod Agrippa, from our story, not much better of a person. He was treacherous, he was superficial, and he was extravagant. But this Herod did have favor with the Jews. It's recorded that Herod loved to live continually at Jerusalem and was exactly careful in the observance of the laws. Herod would play the zealous role of the protector of the Jewish faith. And because of that, the Jews liked him. Herod loved to be loved. And if you're willing to be an extremist like some of the Pharisees, it's easy to receive praise from the Pharisees. And this is what we see in the beginning of the chapter, chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. We read that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. It was this favor that Herod received from persecuting the church that encouraged him to go further. For the Jews to see their king take the strongest measure against the Christians pleased them to the highest degree, so that when Peter escaped from prison, right underneath Herod's nose, Herod had to protect his image against this abomination. So what does he do? He kills all of the guards that were supposed to be watching over Peter. And that's where we pick up our story. Now we're ready to dig in deeper. Chapter 12, verse 19b. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now this tells us something is going on because we know that Herod's favorite place to be was Jerusalem, which is in Judea. So Herod left his favorite city to go to Caesarea, which is in the very northwest corner of Herod's kingdom on the coast. Next verse tells us more. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now Tyre and Sidon are also along the same coast just north out of Herod's reign. So Herod is getting as close as possible to these people, but still staying within his own region. We don't know exactly why Herod was angry with him, but Herod was just a generally angry dude, and today he was angry at Tyre and Sidon. We continue reading. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So whatever tension there are between these cities, it's enough that Herod has cut off the trade routes between him and them. And because the people of Tyre and Sidon depended on that trade route from Palestine for their food, they began to suffer. Now one chapter previous, Acts 11, predicts of a famine that would have occurred around this time, speaking all the more to how eager the people of Tyre and Sidon would be to make peace with the king. So they set a plan in place. With a king who loves attention and praise, it's pretty easy to know how to get into his good books. But they needed an opportunity. So this is where a man named Blastus comes in. 
Now, if I was trying to weasel my way into the good books of the king, and there's this dude named Blastus in the scene, yeah, I would want him on my side and not against me. But moreover, being in the position of the chamberlain meant he was uh, in control over all of the king's rooms. This was a very highly esteemed position. It was a position of honor, of intimacy, and of great influence with the king. So if you can't get through to the king directly, if you can convince his chamberlain, he will do the rest. So Tyre and Sidon persuade Blastus, persuade, likely meaning they bribed him, and now the king is willing to welcome them in and hear their plea for peace. Verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Now, Luke's account doesn't provide a ton of details about the splendor of this day, and this is one time where we can turn to Josephus, and he fills in some of those details for us. He reports that this oration occurred during a celebration, for they were celebrating Rome's recent victory and had grand games in honor of that. The so-called robe that Herod put on was far more than his regular attire, for it claims that this robe was made entirely and completely of silver. And he scheduled this appointment to be at sunrise. So when he was presented to the people, the sun would early in the morning rise and shine, and reflecting off of his silver robe, create a glorious, dazzling splendor amongst the crowds. Now this crowd, they weren't just the city or the common folks. No, this crowd was of politicians. This crowd was of Herod's most esteemed men, and this crowd was the people of Tyre and Sidon ready to make their plea for peace. Ironically, this crowd was also to make a vow of Herod's protection. So we see on this appointed day, Herod was rising to the pinnacle of his glory. The game spoke of his great favor. The most esteemed in the kingdom were present, and Herod's enemies were humbled at his feet. Needless to say, Herod rose to this occasion with extravagant his robes speaking to his glory and soaking in as the crowds shouted in verse 22, the voice of a God and not of a man. The shouting was the crowd giving their most forward flattery to the king in order to satisfy the king, butter him up for the plea of peace they were about to make. And the king made it really easy for them to do this. He wanted the praise so that when they gave him, so, uh, so they gave him what he wanted. They referred to him as higher than a man. They referred to him as a god. How does Herod respond? Herod, who claims to be a devout Jewish follower of the Jewish faith, the Jews who claim that there is only one God, actually Herod doesn't respond at all. He lets it happen. He receives this praise that is given to him. And more than that, he delights in it. He delights in being called a god. He let these pagan idolaters make a pagan god out of him, and he enjoyed it. Verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last Okay, two big things out of this death that we need to address. First, we have to talk about the worms. They're weird, they're kind of distracting, 
deal with it, set it aside, come back and focus on the severity of blasphemy. Okay, so the worms seem to be a superfluous detail that Luke included. Did it really happen like that? Uh, if so, how does it benefit us today? Why is it recorded? Was it really necessary to write this in the Bible? Well, it's in Scripture, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yes, for some reason, this is necessary. Because the Holy Spirit does not prompt people to use useless words in Scripture. When we look at the rest of Acts and the way that Luke writes, he's a very direct, let's get to the point kind of guy. A few chapters ago, we looked at a passage and the very abrupt death of Ananias and Sapphira. Luke did not beat around the bush there. He is not beating around the bush here. There are no filler words. Okay, so you've probably noticed the progression in which this plays out. Naturally, someone dies, and then their body would be laying on the ground and start to rot and decay, and that's when worms come in and eat. That's not what we see here. We read, he was eaten by worms, and then he breathed his last. Some translations simply say he was eaten by worms and then died. Okay, so I've already referenced this historian named Josephus. Uh, he writes a more detailed account of Herod's death and provides some interesting comparisons. Now, quick note, it's important to remember Josephus is a historian, not scripture. Luke is scripture. Okay, so Josephus records these words. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, be merciful to us, for although we have yet reverenced you only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own you as superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. And it goes on to say that at that point, Herod looked up and saw an owl, an owl, maybe our angel, could be, that he instantly knew was a message of ill tidings. He fell into the deepest sorrow, a severe pain, arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. Then Herod spoke to the crowd, I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life. I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. When he said this, again it says his pain became violent. When he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. Thus we see the progression. Okay, what's the first thing you notice about this account? There's no worms. There's definitely something going on. There's an intense pain in Herod's belly, but he doesn't outright say that it's worms. So what's going on here? There's two approaches we can take. One is we can take Luke literally. We can say that Luke said that there's worms because there are little, literal worms. Okay, first thing to note that this case of worms is technically and legitimately possible. I'll spare you the details. There's no PowerPoint slides, but I, I came across a lot of like disturbing stories, both modern and ancient, of this happening. It was kind of a weird week for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, but some do note that medically, this could have been a ball of intestinal worms that caused an obstruction in Herod's intestines. Thus, both accounts are satisfied. Worms, belly pain, could be. 
Uh, this has been reported in Asia a few other times. Others say that worms are commonly a result of eating spoiled pork. Uh, that's interesting because that would also mean that Herod broke Jewish law. Wouldn't really put it past him. Another thought is that Josephus simply omitted the gross detail of saying worms and replaced it with belly pain. Uh, this is un unlikely because he does record other people dying by worms, which raises another question, was uh, how common was this? Uh, there's at least half a dozen other accounts of rulers dying in this manner. They are first eaten and then they die. They could all be literal accounts, that's possible. But in each of these accounts, these are rulers, the most wicked of them, and this death is a direct consequence between their defiance towards God, or in some cases, lowercase g, gods. So we need to look at what's going on here. What are the trends, what are the purposes of these writers saying death by worms? So we need to look at the symbolism of it, which is a second approach we can take that these worms are symbolical. That would be to die by worms would be to denote the kind of death that is deserved by those who despise God. Luke chapter 18, 14 says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Herod exalted himself to the highest degree. Therefore, God is humbling him to the lowest. Worms are used elsewhere in the Bible to denote lowly and lifeless things. So to say, if a man lifts himself up against God, then he becomes weaker than a worm, highlighting the level of insanity it is to stand against the creator of the universe. Okay, so what one is it, literal or symbolic? Personally, I have no problem with taking Luke's account literally. I think there could have been worms. I won't make much of a fuss about it. But whether it's literal or not, I think the symbolism has to come with it. Because Luke did not include this simply to add a gross and random detail in the story. No, Luke had a purpose. He did it to make a point, and that point is to note the severity it is to commit blasphemy against God. Okay, so if Luke is very direct and chooses his words wisely, why did I bother to go into all of these extra details of explaining the background of the story, the characters that were involved, and the events of the day? I have a few reasons. One is to show that Luke did have option to include more in this account, and he deliberately chose not to, meaning that what he did choose is Luke's purpose in writing. It means what he wrote is important. The second thing is that these details help to strike our imagination. They help us to picture the story better because we are reading this a few centuries out of context, out of culture. So to be able to place ourselves in this story is helpful. The stories of the Bible tend to highlight character traits. And whether these are positive or negative, I believe it's a beneficial habit and practice for us to be able to recognize and identify how we relate with these different characters. The unfortunate thing is this story only has one good character, and it's God, and you and I are never God in the story. So no, none of us are as wicked as Herod, but some of us might have some qualities or attributes that Herod possesses. So I ask you the question, 
are you a Herod? Herod was a people pleaser. Huh. That one hits a little closer to home. He was a liar. Herod sought self-glorification. He received false praise. Herod was passive. He didn't deny it, but when it was presented to him, he let it happen. Are you the people of Tyre and Sidon? Do you manipulate people to get your way? Do you target weaknesses in others? Do you seek peace as an absolute last resort? Do you push people to their limits? Or are you a blastus? Are you easily persuaded, unfaithful, unreliable, looking out for his own interest, seeking his personal gain? These are hard questions to ask, but we need to be honest with ourselves. And the goal of doing this practice is to discover how is our relationship with God being hindered? This is for the purpose of conviction, which leads to repentance, which leads to unity with God. Uh, so you can do this at any time. When you go home this week, pick any story, ask what are the characters, what are the attributes, how do I identify with them? It can be positive or negative, both are beneficial, but you have to be honest. And the purpose is always for personal growth. Okay, so the account of Luke and the account of Josephus might not agree entirely on the case of the worms in this account, but the two do undoubtedly agree that Herod's gruesome death was an immediate consequence of blasphemy. Blasphemy is a serious offense and one that scripture deals with sternly. Blasphemy is defiant irreverence of God. It can come in many forms, such as cursing God, willfully degrading things related to God, attributing evil to God, or denying the good that should be attributed to God, or in Herod's case, claiming to be God yourself. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have teachings on blasphemy, and specifically blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which they label as the unforgivable sin. Matthew and Mark are very similar in that both cases, Jesus is prompted to give this teaching because when the Pharisees saw him casting out demons, they determined it must be the, by the power of a demon that Jesus is casting out demons. I said, they claimed that what Jesus was doing was demon-possessed rather than spirit-filled. They attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan, and that is a serious offense. Interesting, both Matthew and Mark, what we see in the very next chapter is that Jesus begins to speak in parables, and he claims that he speaks in parables so that some, mainly the Pharisees, will not understand his teachings. Okay, there's a lot more we can get from Matthew and Mark, but I want to focus on Luke. Luke chapter 12, verse 8 to 10. It says, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. Those two verses are unique to Luke. Matthew and Mark don't share them. This last verse, all three have in common. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. 
So the Bible speaks of a sin that is unforgivable, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, many people live in fear of this passage, fear of wondering, have they committed this sin? Fear of wondering, are they going to commit this sin? And though we are commanded to live in fear of the Lord, that is awe and reverence, we are not commanded to live in a spirit of fear of our security. So I will tell you plainly and clearly right now that if you have ever questioned, wondered, or doubted committing this sin, you have not. Because your heart is revealing a desire to be with Christ. You are in a posture of seeking truth. Therefore, you can repent and you will be forgiven. Because in this intense passage, we get so hung up on the negative, on the unforgivable, that we completely pass by the glorious grace that is in front of us. Because it also says that whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. This is the gospel. This is the truth. Repent, and he is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Okay, Jesus is making a distinction between sinning against the Son of Man, Jesus, and sinning against the Spirit. Why? Yes, there is one God, but they function in three persons, the Trinity, and each person has a unique and distinct role to play. So forgiveness is the goal. How are we forgiven? By the power of Christ through our confession and repentance. If there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness. Where does repentance come from? A godly grief or conviction that is revealed by the Spirit. If we continually reject the Spirit and willfully deny His work, we will become hardened to the conviction of the Spirit. And the more we do it, the quieter the Spirit's voice will be. To the point that if we are no longer convicted, we will not turn to repentance. And if we do not turn to repentance, there is no forgiveness. Thus, we have the unforgivable. All right, on that cheery note, let's bring this back together and connect the dots back to Herod. In Acts chapter 12, Luke is writing a story of Herod versus God. God leading us to, um, Herod versus God, leading us to a very blatant truth that if you oppose God, you lose. Herod commits blasphemy by allowing himself to be recognized as a God. And in Luke's account where he teaches on blasphemy, he incorporates that those who deny Jesus before men will be denied before the angels of God. What we see in this passage is Herod was struck down by an angel right after he denied God to the crowds. Herod has been intentionally rejecting the truth of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit for a very long time. In fact, he hates when the Spirit is at work. And we see that in just the verses prior for Peter's miraculous escape from prison. What is Herod's response? Rage and murder. Okay, so now Herod has crossed the line, and Jesus is using him to make an example of the entire Roman Empire of what becomes of a man who blasphemies against God. Horrific death by worms. The immediacy of Herod's death here is again contributing to the potency of the greater story at hand, that you cannot stand in the way of God. 
And we see this play out in our last verse. Luke 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Persecution, attacks, false gods, none of these can hinder the movement of the Holy Spirit and the growth of the church, the spread of Jesus Christ throughout this world. This whole chapter is about God showing his mighty power in an undeniable way. Not only was Peter spared from persecution, not only was Herod, the driving force of persecution, swept from the stage, but the exact thing that Herod was trying to prevent was indeed magnified and glorified. No, you cannot stand in the way of God. His will is always accomplished, but you can stand against God. And if you do, you will lose every time. Okay, earlier we did a self-examination of what character or characteristics we might relate to or identify with in this story. Now, this story is also directing us to who we should be by way of showing us two extreme events, one of victory through Peter's escape and one of defeat through Herod's death. And the final outcome, the spreading of the word, Luke is encouraging the church to stand firm and hold fast to our faith and calling. Luke is encouraging the church to stand firm and hold fast to our faith and calling. For although we may take a hit, though there will be difficult seasons and times of struggle, for the church lost one of their great rulers, our great leaders, James the Apostle, but in the end, the church will stand all the taller. So, be one who partners with the spread of the word. If there is one thing for us personally, to take away from this, or for the church today to hear from this passage, it's this. Do not shy away from the gospel. Do not shy away from the gospel. Church, have we shied away from the gospel? Because when I read the word of God increased and multiplied, and I look at the nation around us today, I don't know if that's what I see. We might be able to see it in other countries, but I don't know if we can say that is true for Canada today. What can I say? I can say this, is that GPAC, you are doing well. You're doing well as a church. If you look at day camp last week, they did not shy away from the gospel. And the result are those roses. We have Bear Lake Bible Camp coming up this week, and I know that they will not shy away from the gospel. I see where our church is going, the initiatives of our changed heart and changed lives, and that is not shying away from the gospel. But I wonder if we can do more. I wonder if we can do more personally, more on the other six days of the week. I wonder if we can be bold and courageous in our faith, live life in a way that others recognize that you are a follower of Christ. Don't shy away from spiritual conversations. This is often where things break down. I encourage you to engage with it. Engage spiritual matters. Leave the outcome to God. What does this look like? It means living with purpose, living on mission. It means loving your neighbors and making disciples and being wise and strategic in how we do these things. Don't just be a person of good morals. Be a person who loves in the name of Jesus. Do people know 
that you do what you do in the name of Jesus. At the grocery store, at the park, in the workplace, we can be bold because the Spirit is at work and He will prevail. Okay, two weeks ago, we had 19 of your youth spend five days here at the church learning and practicing this missional living. A large portion of what we had them do was to go out into their city, go out into Grand Prairie, and practice these things. They were to have open hearts and open eyes. They were to be learners of the community and to seek how can we engage with our city. They were to be prayerful in all that they did. And day after day, they rose to the challenge. I saw them grow immensely because of it. Not because of what I did with them, nothing because I did, but because your youth were open to the Holy Spirit. By the end, these youth had the courage to converse with strangers because they were in tune with the Spirit and followed his promptings. They had wisdom to direct their conversations to spiritual matters. And they had the boldness to pray for these people. Was every conversation a win? No, it wasn't. But every conversation was stepping out into our calling and leaving the outcome to God. So I challenge you the same way that I have challenged your youth. Start by being learners of our community. Be wise in your approach and in all things, be prayerful and considerate. Then when the Spirit prompts you, move. Move and move with boldness because you are not moving alone. In conclusion, what do we learn from this chapter, from this bizarre death? That if you side with Jesus, you will win every time. If you stand against him, you will lose. It's as simple as that. And we see that this story falls in perfectly in line with the greater picture of what's happening in the book of Acts. The unstoppable movement and growth of the church through the Holy Spirit. The only question remains is, will you grow with it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and you are merciful to us. And Lord, we declare that you and you alone are God. We humble ourselves before you, and Lord, we worship you. Lord, we desire to stand with you, to partner with you in all that you do. Lord, may it not be our own agenda, but may we be seeking your will and your work every single day of our life. And Lord, would you strengthen us with your spirit to follow accordingly. Lord, we pray for wisdom in all things, and we pray for ears to hear and the eyes to see the ways in which you are working around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.